Creative Babble. This podcast contains disturbing and violent content. Listener discretion is advised. Deputy Sheriff Jeremy Banks calls 911. And when deputies found the pulse, they say Jeremy turned angry. When Mark said, I've got a pulse, Jeremy's whole, whole demeanor changes. And he starts pacing out in the driveway and growling. I, that's all I can say. He sounds like he's growling. He was angry. He just was like, ah. Ten years later, Jeremy Banks is still on the job, thanks to this guy, Sheriff Shore. Jeremy Banks had nothing to do with that case. But I'm telling you, I'm st- I'd stake a 33-year career on it. I'm talking about where the rubber meets the road. He didn't do nothing wrong. The sheriff considers this case over, but not everyone felt the same. Almost a decade after Michelle O'Connell's death, a sleuth named Eli Washtock took it upon himself to investigate her death. And then he was murdered. Yeah, he asked me, there, there's no doubt in my mind that this, it's all tied together somehow. You know, supposedly he's turned up some good stuff and now he's gone. John and I dropped by the St. Johns County Clerks of Court. We pulled hundreds of records of publicly available documents on Eli Washtock. So, Javier, check this out. It says Eli Washtock was in a relationship with a woman named Katrina Van Knocker, though it doesn't look like they were married. Wow. So, look, it says here that they had two young children together, a boy and a girl. We have a lot of documents to sort through. Yeah, hundreds of pages of court filings. We have everything from Eli's death certificate to financial statements. But these documents right here, they caught my attention. It's an injunction for protection against domestic abuse. Wait, so Katrina had a restraining order against Eli? No, it's the other way around. Eli filed for a temporary protective order, you know, basically a restraining order, against the mother of his children. It looks like there was like a domestic situation involving their kids. And Eli claims that Katrina lost her temper and she slapped their son. So all this happened a little over 10 years ago in 2009? It says here, since filing the injunction, Katrina, quote, had a fragile emotional state which has deteriorated. Ooh, check this out right here. It says that Eli came home to find his apartment vandalized with over an inch of water and his children were missing. Yeah, Javier, this sounds bad. I mean, it's a lot of he said, she said. I mean, Katrina claimed Eli fabricated the allegations. There's no witnesses to either side. There's no police reports or none of the injuries were documented. I mean, it's really unsubstantiated accusations on both sides. This situation just got a whole lot more complicated. For some reason, and we will never know the complete answer, Michelle O'Connell's case resonated with Eli. After reviewing all these court documents, it looks like he didn't have a fairy tale home life either. Whatever personal setbacks Eli faced, it may have motivated him to seek justice for someone who couldn't speak for themselves. You're not a bad man, you're not a bad man. 
creators of Twisted and Pretend, this is Criminal Conduct Season 1, an investigative podcast looking into the death of Michelle O'Connell and the murder of Eli Washtock. Ladies and gentlemen. What are you doing? What do you mean? I'm making Just keep a, it simple. Uh, I'm making the promo. Just keep it simple. Just say, hey, we're the Bravo Bros. Two guys that talk about Bravo. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we're the Bravo Bros. No. Oh. Dude, stop with the voice. Just the vo- keep it simple. I've seen promos on TV, dude. This is how you get the fans engaged. This is how you get listeners. We're trying to get listeners here. If we just say, oh, we're two dudes that talk about Bravo, people are going to get tired of it already. We need some oomph. All right, then fine. Let's try to do it with your voice. Bravo, bros. Good job. Let's start at the beginning when Jeremy and Michelle first fell in love. Here's Michelle O'Connell's mom, Patty, again. Scott was the one that introduced uh, Michelle to Jeremy. Scott O'Connell is Michelle's brother. Remember that name, because he's going to play a very important role in this story. Around 2009, when Michelle and Jeremy met, Scott was working as a deputy sheriff for St. John's County. We went to the beach one day in the summer, and Jeremy was, you know, with Scott, and we hung out on the beach. But it was, I think they were looking at each other, thinking, okay, yeah, and I'm, I'm sure they communicate it. The next time I saw Jeremy with Michelle, we were at Treaty Park. He was in his uniform and Michelle's on a swing and he's pushing her on the swing and I'm, I'm like, oh, this is so nice. You know, he'll protect her. He's a deputy. I just see this young man, nice looking young guy. Michelle's in love with him and he's like obviously in love with her. And I'm thinking everything's great. And once they got going, they were never apart. This is Austin Taylor. He was friends with both Jeremy and Michelle. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he, he really liked her. He, he thought she was super cool. and. Austin says he'll never forget Jeremy and Michelle's first date because it was on his 21st birthday. It was kind of funny because he actually showed up kind of late. We were over at my friend's house and we were waiting on Jeremy so we'd go downtown and he showed up late because he had gone on a date with Michelle. They started hanging out a lot. Like it got to a point where we, like I was even saying, I was like, hey man, slow down. You know what I mean? Because you guys were hanging out all, they were hanging out all the time. One date led to two. Then, they were hanging out several times a week. And before anyone realized it, Michelle moved into Jeremy's place. But let's go back a little further. All we hear about is Michelle's grisly death. But in life, she was a mother, a daughter, a sister. Here's Patty O'Connell, Michelle's mom again. She was born October 6, 1985 first minute she was born she didn't cry and I I knew all the others you know my other children I had six kids and she was my sixth one they all cried just as the doctor walked in she started crying and she didn't have a big like a big cry it was just like a whiff you know as she got a little older she would always bring me home kittens I don't know where she found them because I think because of her brothers she was athletic She could run really fast. In high school, Michelle decided to go to a vocational school to learn childhood development. During this time, that's when she got some unexpected news. 
when she found out she was pregnant, she wanted a really healthy baby. She was like doing everything right. When Michelle and the baby's father split up, she decided to raise her little girl on her own. Did she like being a mom? Oh, she loved it. She loved it. The day she found out she was pregnant, she was crying. And she says, Mom, I'm pregnant. I said, oh, you got the baby. That's a good thing, you know. That's what I would want someone to say to me, you know, if it was me. And and I and that from that point on, she would she didn't smoke. She ate so healthy. When it came time to have Alexis brought home, she already had the car seat. She had her little clothing, all her little clothes lined up. What she was going to take her home in. So what do we know about Jeremy Banks? This is Austin Taylor again. He's still friends with Jeremy. I actually met Jeremy back in high school. And Jeremy played in a band with some of my friends uh, in high school. Austin tells me that Jeremy plays a mean guitar and wrestled back in high school. And after graduating, Jeremy joined the St. John's County Sheriff's Office as a deputy. We would love to tell you more about Jeremy Banks, but most people who know him well don't want to talk to us. We've spoken to plenty of people off the record, but a lot of people just want to stay away. We invited Jeremy Banks to talk to us several times to share his point of view. But both Jeremy and his attorney declined our repeated requests for interviews. There was one person from Jeremy's past that we wanted to speak with. Someone who knows Jeremy intimately. I was a dispatcher at the sheriff's office. This is Karen Delancet. We just started hanging out and then started dating. And how long did you guys date? Uh, a year. Yeah. A year before all this happened. And what was that relationship like? I was working as a dispatcher for 911, 12-hour shift. Working that kind of shift work because it was 12-hour days and you work. It's really hard to meet other people. Karen tells me that during the year when they were together, Jeremy would often stay at her place. But she said that towards the end of the relationship, they decided to make it official and get their own apartment. Then we got an apartment, and that was towards the end of the year of our dating. Like, I think we moved in in October, and he moved out in November. So that that didn't last very long. May I ask, I mean, what what happened? I think it was just too serious for him. And unlike Michelle O'Connell, who was planning on packing up her things and moving out, this time it was Jeremy who wanted out of the relationship. Yes, he broke up with me, but it wasn't like it was this breakup. You know, it was just kind of, he, you know, had moved in with me too quickly for him. And so he moved out and then we just kind of, it faded. Despite the fact that their relationship ended, Karen and Jeremy continued being friends. After Michelle died, Karen says that Jeremy sought comfort in their friendship. I mean, the night after it happened, I was working and he came and spent like the whole night with me at work like I went and sat and talked to him what did you guys talk about because that must have been a really emotional time for him yeah he was in shock and just you know he couldn't believe that she did that and I don't think he even thought at that point that anybody would ever suspect him but according to the 911 dispatcher who took the call the night Michelle died Karen made a shocking admission 
The dispatcher reported that she called Karen soon after Michelle's death to tell her the news. And Karen's reaction was, quote, that could have been me. Molly Davis, who was a 911 operator, she she claims that you told her that that you said that that could have been me, that you guys spoke the, mm-hmm. the night of or soon after. Yeah, she called me right after it happened. Did you say that? I don't remember saying that. Very few people, other than Jeremy's current wife, Michelle, and you, have been in a, in a relationship with Jeremy. Did you at any time while you were with him, were you at all ever afraid? Or did you ever have any fear for your safety? No, I was never afraid. It, it didn't even like hint at violence towards me. It wasn't like people punching walls or anything like that. He never did anything like that at all. And just everything that I've, I know about him, there's no way he ever did, would do that. And plus, she was kind of crazy. What's interesting here is that Karen is painting a radically different picture of Jeremy. Exactly. The narrative that we keep hearing is that Jeremy Banks was controlling and abusive towards Michelle. But she's saying it's the opposite. It was Michelle who was the hostile figure in the relationship. Yeah, I mean, she tried to fight me the first time she met me. According to Karen, Michelle was threatened by the fact that she was Jeremy's ex. And she wanted to fight me. And I was like, I don't care that you're dating him. If he's happy, good. Like, I'm not jealous or not here trying to get him back. It sounds like Michelle was a bit feisty. But let's talk about Jeremy's temperament. How does Jeremy respond to situations? Does he have a short fuse or is he a patient person? Well, he gets angry, but he separates himself from the situation to calm down and think about it before he comes back and does anything because he doesn't want to say something he doesn't mean. Did you and Jeremy experience any of that kind of volatility in your relationship? No. I mean... Not, no, not, nothing like what I later heard about the two of them. But uh, we've heard from several people off the record that Jeremy has a, a real hot temper. Would you, would you say being in a relationship with him that you observe that? Yeah, I mean, things would make him mad, but, you know, he was never violent about it being in an intimate relationship with him, do you think he would have been capable of killing Michelle? One, I don't think he would ever, you know, kill somebody if he didn't have to, like a life or death situation. But also, he would never take a mother away from her kid. And he loved that little girl. first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.
John, when you spoke with Michelle's friends, did they know things were bad? Were there any signs of abuse, or was this the kind of thing that everyone's trying to make sense of it after her death? I asked Mindy Fox, Michelle's friend, this same question. Did she ever say anything about that she was afraid of him or anything like that? Towards the end, she was talking about being afraid of him, that he always left his gun out, and it was very intimidating. Um, She didn't like it, and she'd argue with him about that because she had a, a daughter that could easily reach it, and it was really scary. So you you thought, yeah, this is a bad situation. She should get out of it. Yeah. I mean, if you're not happy, you're not happy, and you shouldn't try to stay in a relationship you're not happy in. She's young. She wanted, you know, she wanted another child. She wanted to get married, and she just wasn't happy with Jeremy. Patty says that even Michelle's then four-year-old daughter could sense the tension. We were outside for a couple of minutes, and Jeremy pulls up in his police car. And right away, he wants Alexis to love on him. But she's scared of him. She's not going to run up. And, and you know, children have, a, like, a natural defense. They know who to be careful around. And I saw that right away. I said, he gets angry that she doesn't love him. You know, she's not fond of him. And I'm, I saw that with my own eyes. I saw that he gets annoyed. Maybe he wanted respect. I asked Austin, who knew both Michelle and Jeremy, what he thought of the tension in the relationship. They, they got to a point where they were, you know, they were arguing a lot. And, but it was nothing ever, I mean, it was nothing ever too crazy. Just kind of just, just, you know, typical boyfriend-girlfriend arguments and fights. And, you know, I remember thinking to myself, that was one of the reasons you guys probably were arguing. is You, you kind of rushed into being together all the time. Do you remember it ever getting physical between either of them? No, I mean, Jeremy told me later on about one incident where they were arguing about something and she kind of like ran at him and like tried to hit him or something. Uh, and he he kind of like held her down and you know told her to calm down. You know, but that's the only thing I can ever remember. According to Austin, it was Michelle who was the one who provoked Jeremy. I mean... Michelle was, I mean, sure, her family would say this too. Michelle was scrappy, you know what I mean? She was not, uh, she was not a pushover. She, like, came at him, like, a, like to hit him or something, and he, he did some kind of police, that, I don't know the, the terms or anything, but he, he, was, he was not trying to intentionally hurt her by any means. He told me that they would often fight, and those fights would lead to irrational behavior. I did hear stories. I mean, there was one instance where she went down with Jeremy's family to the Keys on a trip, and they, they got in an argument about something. I don't remember what it was. She just, like, grabbed her bag and got out of the car and started walking on A1A. But she just got out of the car and, started, and basically said, I'm walking home. And that's, like, that's like a nine-hour drive. <laughs> so, And they, they tried telling her, you know, get back in the car, and she just was apparently just focused on walking home. You know, they said it didn't look like she was bluffing. She was planning on walking all the way home. Needless to say, Michelle didn't end up walking home that day. Like many women trapped in unstable relationships, she began to walk away, but ultimately chose to return because she believed that staying was her best option. Here's Patty O'Connell again. She would just say, I need to get out of this situation with Jeremy. And she just didn't have enough time And did she ever have plans on getting married with him? Oh, no. No. There was no plan for those two ever getting married. 
I knew he was being mean to her, you know, and I, the day before she died, she hugged me. We were at, at the front door and um, she asked, Scott denies it, but she asked Scott for help. And he says, do you have any marks? Do you have any bruises? Scott O'Connell is Michelle's brother. Remember him? He's the brother who introduced Michelle and Jeremy. He says, there's nothing I can do. So she says, she hugs me at the front door and it's this hug. I think she knew she was in danger. It's like, mom, I love you. She asked me to go to talk to Scott. So she went out the door. I said, Scott, can't you help her? Mom, there's nothing I can do. They fight all the time. Well, you know what? When people fight all the time, there you should be, you should have help her a little. You know, I mean, I know you're a deputy and you don't want to make waves. In both scenarios, the suicide and the homicide scenario, there's no doubt that this was an unhealthy relationship. When Michelle's friends first heard the news that she was gone, they knew exactly what happened. Here's Michelle's best friend, Mindy, again. So the next morning I got a text message from her saying that she loved me. Yeah, that was the last message I got from her. The next morning... I went to drop my girls off at school and she wasn't, she wasn't there. And Miss Teresa pulled me into her office and she told me, oh, Michelle is gone. When you heard that she was shot, what was your first thought? That he killed her. She wouldn't do it herself. I thought maybe he'd be arrested or something, but no. But Austin Taylor, a mutual friend of Michelle and Jeremy, saw things differently. I tried calling him, couldn't get a hold of him. And then so I, I tried calling Michelle, couldn't get a hold of her, obviously. My friend texted me and was like, hey, like, what's, what's going on? And she's like, uh, Michelle shot herself this was last night. Now, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I can't remember who I talked to that told me that Jeremy was over at his, uh, his grandparents' house. I went over there. I walked in the room. And it was like, it was dead silent in the house. You know, you could have heard a pin drop, and, and Jeremy was sitting in one of the living rooms with his uh, with his family, and he was in a chair, and you could just see his whole face just swollen from crying. And, uh, you know, I went up and I gave him a hug, and as he was hugging me, he just was sobbing, you know. And then uh, we got up, we got in his car, and uh, he put on a CD. It was one of the last presents she had bought him. We just drove around for like 15, 20 minutes just blasting the music. And you could walk to the beach from, from my house, and he and I grabbed a bottle of rum and we just went down to, uh, we walked down to the beach and he still had the last voicemail she had left him on his phone. And uh, we sat there and we probably pressed play and listened to that voicemail probably 30 times just to hear her voice. What did it say? Do you remember? <laughs> she had, uh, well, she had left two. There was one where that, that song by Uncle Cracker, um, You Make Me Smile, had just come out. And so she had left a long voice down. It was, it was like the chorus of that song. And then she was just like, love you, babe. And then hung up the phone. And then the other one was just something simple. It was just something like, hey, I'm picking this up before I'm coming home. Love you. Or it was something like that. You know, but it was just to hear her voice. You know what I mean? We, we sat there over and over again. And when he, when he handed me the phone, I just kept pressing play. And he goes, he goes, I do that same thing almost every day. Just sit there and just listen to it, you know? And again, I'm not, I'm not a criminal profiler, but that to me sounds like somebody is grieving for the loss of their, their girlfriend, not somebody who murdered them. He very clearly loved her. He very clearly was incredibly upset that she had passed, you know? 
he had put a hair tie on his shifter in his car. It probably it was probably there for over a year. You know, he he missed her. Mindy hasn't spoken much to Jeremy since Michelle died. However, she did see him once in passing. When did you talk to him? At the grave site. I went to go see her at the grave site. And um, he was there before me. He was about to leave. And I was cordial with him. But it left a huge knot in my stomach and in my throat. Like, I didn't know how to act. And my friend was like, I can't believe you were nice to him. <laughs> but I, you know, I'm not going to, not going to be mean. I, yeah. I'm not a mean, I'm not a mean person. I just want to be able to prove, you know, prove that he did it. And, you know, why, why can't we go to court? Like, why? <laughs> if you're so innocent and you didn't do it, prove it. Austin Taylor says that some people in the community villainize Jeremy Banks, but he says that they forget that he's grieving too. On the one year anniversary of her passing, you know, we went down to a pier. We just sat and, and drank a case of beer together and just talked about it. And she would say, I just don't know why the hell she thought she had to do this. He's told me several times, why couldn't we have just broken up and that been it? Why, why did she have to do this? It's been about 10 years, so how is he processing all this now? Um, I mean, he's doing good. He's uh, on, a, on a, you know, on a personal level, he's doing good. <sighs> I mean, the whole thing is really kind of hard to explain. The fact that, you know, half the town hates him. That, you know, that's affected him negatively, but he's just kind of had to get numb to it, in a sense. You know what I mean? He tries not to, not to worry about it. He, he focuses on his family, you know what I mean? And tries to, you know, just tries to go day by day, you know? Austin tells me that it's not just Jeremy Banks who walks around town with a cloud looming over his head. The stares and glares are extended to pretty much anyone around him. And that same dark cloud that hangs over Jeremy hangs over Patty O'Connell every single day. Her life was forever altered by Michelle's death. She is currently raising Michelle's daughter, Alexis. She sees so much of Michelle and Alexis, her mannerisms, her caring nature, and even her tiny little handwriting, which is just like Michelle's. But when Patty looks back at her daughter's life, she can't help but notice how everything in life is cyclical. When I was pregnant with her, my husband was abusing me, and I knew that I had had my limits. He had already physically abused me, hit me in the eye and kicked me and pulled my hair, and I was pregnant with her. And I thought, I can't do this anymore. She remembers a time when her husband attacked her on the drive home. And just like her daughter, Michelle, she wanted out of that car. He was angry about something and we were in a car and he was starting to hit me again, but it was just in my shoulder. And you know, then I just said, I'm gonna get help. And she did. She opened up the door and ran out. So I got help and the policeman couldn't arrest him because he didn't see him hit me, but I did the marks. He said, you have to make a citizen's arrest. So I made the citizen's arrest and my husband was arrested. So I ended up in a battered woman's shelter, which is probably the best thing that ever happened to me. You know, we know that the home is the most dangerous place for a woman, for example. We know that women are being killed at pandemic rates by the men who are meant to love and care for them. 
This is Laura Richards. Her background is in forensic and legal psychology. She also worked in Scotland Yard, running their sexual offenses section and homicide prevention unit. Laura tells me that we should reconsider how we talk about domestic violence. When we call it an abusive relationship, we mask the fact that normally there's a power imbalance and it's one person abusing the other. Instead, we should call it like it is, coercive control. So coercive control is very much about a power imbalance and inequality. Too often people think that domestic abuse is about physical violence, but actually in my experience, normally you see lots of other behaviors before a physical act happens or before a sexual act happens. I asked Laura, how many times does it take for a woman to leave a relationship? On average, it takes about seven attempts to leave successfully when there has been abuse in a relationship. Laura says that when a woman finally decides to leave, that's the most dangerous time in a relationship. Separation is really a heightened risk factor for homicide. And if there's finality, for example, and the victim saying, I'm never coming back to you, then that finality, again, is a risk marker. And if there's entitlement with the rejection and they want revenge on that victim, you're not going to get away from me this time. I told you, bitch, you try and do this again. I'm not playing games. I'm prepared to go to prison for this. These statements of last resort thinking and finality and entitlement, well, now you're in a very dangerous situation. And that's where we get 76% of domestic violence murders happening on separation. It's important to note that Michelle and Jeremy never had any documented reports of domestic violence. We have no written records to support any claims of abuse. But that doesn't mean to say the abuse isn't happening. And I think that's a really important part that when people say, oh, there was no history. In my experience, I haven't seen a homicide yet come out of the blue. You know, it doesn't just happen that you get that one homicidal event and you've got nothing before it. Patty O'Connell was pregnant with Michelle when she decided to leave her abusive husband. She can't help but draw parallels between her life and the life of Michelle. Michelle was born at a hospital, but I was in a battered woman's shelter at the time. And it's just ironic that, uh, and this sounds crazy, but I always thought later after she was killed, I said, it's almost like someone was after her before she was born. You know, there's domestic violence right there before she's born. And then she dies due to domestic violence. Next time on Criminal Conduct. We examine what went wrong with the St. John's County investigation. Well, I wouldn't interview him at the scene. First of all, I'd have him taken down to my office and put in an interview room. And I'd uh, interview him there. And I just asked him to go through the story to see if his story matches what the physical evidence at the scene shows. Jeremy Banks explains his bizarre 911 call. I, I, I kind of veered in, I saw her feet, I ran in. I just grabbed her ass, I started, I don't know what. I tried to not sound like somebody from the sheriff's office, I tried to sound like somebody just called in, just said something, yeah. And they kept giving me a whole bunch of bullshit, so I told him finally who I was and just get somebody here. And the state of Florida opens up an independent investigation looking into the death of Michelle O'Connell. That's next time on Criminal Conduct.
special thanks to our executive producer, AdvertiseCast, and to Ruby Rose Fox for allowing us to use her song, Bury the Body. Her music is available anywhere you can purchase music. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, make sure to check out our other shows. John Taylor hosts a podcast called Twisted. John unravels intricacies of true crime and does a deep dive analysis of some of the most thought-provoking crime cases. And check out the show Pretend Podcast. It's hosted by me, Javier Leva. Pretend is a true crime documentary style podcast about real people pretending to be someone else. I interview con artists and their victims. The links to both of our shows are in the show notes. Also, special thanks to Heather Arrington for lending her voice on this episode. A new episode of Criminal Conduct is out next week. It's estimated that at any given time, there are 90,000 missing persons. And that's just in the United States. Imagine if your loved one went missing. Is there anything that you wouldn't do to try and find them? Would you cross oceans? Spend your life savings? Continually retrace your last known steps, just hoping something jumped out at you? This is Missing Persons, a brand new podcast, and I'm your host, Mike Morford. If you're a true crime podcast fan, you might recognize me from some of my other podcasts, including Criminology, Three Men in a Mystery, and The Murder of My Family. The most important part of hosting a podcast for me is advocating for the cases and the victims I discuss, as well as their families. I've been approached by so many people with a missing loved one asking me if I could help them in any way. And if it was my loved one that was missing, I'd want someone to help me too, so I couldn't say no. And this podcast, Missing Persons, is the result of me wanting to help. In every episode of Missing Persons, you'll hear about a person who disappeared and currently remains missing. In some cases, there are clues to follow and leads to check on. In other cases, it's as if the person just vanished off the face of the earth. And in each episode, you'll hear from someone who's searching for that missing person. And whether they've been looking for 30 days or 30 years, the pain of not knowing what happened to their loved one is real. And the search for answers, painful one. Missing Persons officially launches in March 2020. Will you join me and become part of the search for answers in these cases? If so, search for and subscribe to Missing Persons right now, wherever you listen to podcasts, so you don't miss an episode. Creative Power.